Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode. For those of you who don't know, I'm due to have my first child in July. So by the time you're listening to this, I'll be well and truly knee-deep in nappies. Before I go on maternity leave, I decided I wanted to make hay while the sun shines. So I teamed up with the legends at Territory Natural Resource Management to produce a podcast series. It's called Our Territory, Our Future, and you can find it on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes below. Today, I'm sharing one of those episodes, and it's actually part one of three episodes. A couple of weeks ago, I sat down with two legends by the name of Stu and Brett, and they're experts in all things feral animals, and they run an incredible wildlife and feral animal management business. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you head over to the Our Territory, Our Future podcast and listen to parts two and three, as well as the other episodes, including some from Lakefield, Mataranka and Minoru Station. The Northern Territory is home to unique landscapes, flora and fauna. In this podcast, we explore what landholders, community groups, industry and government are doing to ensure sustainable management of water, land, soils and biodiversity. This podcast is brought to you by Territory Natural Resource Management, an independent, not-for-profit organisation that develops supports and delivers projects to protect the natural resources of the Northern Territory and improve sustainability of all practices taking place. When you hear the words feral animal, what comes to mind? Do you know what counts as a feral animal as opposed to wild and domestic animals? And do they have a place in our environment? Or should we be trying to eradicate them? My name is Steph Coombs and in this three-part series I'm joined by Brett Otley and Stu Barker, the team behind Wild Science, a company which uses science and on-the-ground experience for wildlife and feral animal management. And we will be exploring all of these questions and more. In part one, we'll explore what a feral animal is, how they came to be in Australia and how their populations have thrived. Be sure to tune in to part two and three as we discuss how the population ecology of feral animals differs from domestic animals and the principles of feral animal management in northern Australia. Why do feral animals need to be managed? Usually it revolves around damage trying to manage some sort of level of damage. So, you know, digging large areas of floodplain up, weed spread or having ferals in amongst cattle and stuff uh, represent risks, uh, disease risks and management risks. So, yeah, there's a whole variety of reasons, but usually they revolve around solving a problem of some sort of environmental or management damage. That can include threatened species as well. And 
that does occur, people are harvesting crock eggs. So big ferals can be impacting the nesting sites, which then impacts on returns. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, only a problem in the big swamp and floodplain areas up here where there is, there, there is populations of large herbivore ferals that, that especially buffalo get into the swamps and they damage a lot of vegetation and, and, and the disturbance from the animals, the crocs don't like the disturbance. So you will see a decline in croc nests in areas where there's a lot of heavy use by buffalo. Of all the things I thought of when it came to feral animals, that is not an example I was expecting <laughs> you guys to come up with. We haven't done much down in Central Australia or, or Southern Australia. Most of our work's been Northern Australia across the top. So let's talk about some of the other damage that they cause. Obviously, yeah, disturbance to areas which may disturb, which may then go on to disturb the native animals that inhabit that area, such as crocs and swamps. You mentioned digging up floodplains. On the floodplains, yeah. Well, it's, it's on a pastoral property, you lose pasture. Pigs in particular can dig up large areas of floodplain. In conservation areas, they can dig up wild rice, which is important food for geese and stuff. So, and that disturbance allows weeds like mimosa and some of the grassy weeds to invade those areas. So the, the flow-on effects can be, you know, weed spread and loss of biodiversity in terms of the plant species present, native plant species that make up the floodplain flora. And does this happen just on the floodplains or does that extend into other sorts of land systems as well? Yeah, it, it goes across other land systems, but I suppose those areas which support large numbers of ferals, there's more, yeah, perceived more impact. Okay. So even even saltwater intrusion is another one with buffalo mm. and things like that living on those coastal floodplains, creating channels and then the saltwater can come in further and further, which then starts impacting on those fringe freshwater areas. So would you say the impacts of feral animals may be more severe in, say, areas like the top end of the territory versus the Barclay or Central Australia or other more drier areas? perhaps because it's got that water resource and a feed resource that can support higher numbers versus the desert? Not necessarily because some of those environments inland are more fragile. We're familiar with environments up here, so the floodplains can be severely impacted by high densities of large numbers of buffalo or cattle and and species like pigs. Back in the heyday of BTEC, when, when uh, there was large numbers of buffalo out around the floodplains up here, even in the middle of the wet, the floodplains were like billiard tables. There just wasn't a lot of grass. There wasn't a lot. And, and they, the large numbers of buffalo at that, at that time allowed the spread of weeds like mimosa and stuff. So there's, there's the flow and effects of having too many. But yeah, when you go inland, a lot of the desert country is very fragile. And, and so the, the impacts are dependent on, I guess, the type of feral animal you've got and, and how them, what they're utilizing the, the areas that they live in. So yeah, horses inland can be problematic. They, they can cause heavy grazing pressure and cause erosion, um, in, in drier areas, which are more fragile to things like soil disturbance. If you've got large numbers of feral horses or donkeys or, or, or other large feral herbivores, they're competing directly, obviously, with, if you've got cattle, they're competing directly with, with them, your cattle for food. So if they're, den- if their numbers get really high, obviously they're going to be out competing in many ways, but because they're eating a lot of the resource that you could be using to grow cows. And you mentioned just a moment ago, there's also a, a biosecurity risk there, not just with the spread of weeds, but in terms of animal health as well. What can happen there with feral animals? What sort of 
uh, disease risks do they present or biosecurity risks? Well, it's pretty topical with lumpy skin and foot and mouth and all these sorts of diseases sitting on our doorstep at the current time. They can obviously pick up those sorts of things and then spread and interact with domestic animals, which in then impacts critically on export markets, particularly in this part of the world. But on top of that, they also can host diseases that can be passed on to humans and there's human health issues that, that come through it as well. Do we issues more around that the larger populations of ferals are reservoirs for some of these diseases? Mm. There's always a risk, I suppose, of catching something, but it's it's pretty I, – I wouldn't rate it as high. I think it's more that the pop, having a large population of feral pigs across the top end here, for example – Represents a significant risk for exotic diseases like African swine fever and stuff because they can, they, it gets into that population of pigs and then it's, it's in the environment and then we've got to manage it. The other, the other big one at the moment is Japanese encephalitis that pigs and other animals can carry, be a reservoir for, you know, they carry the virus and they can spread it. All right. Well, we've mentioned a few different species so far. So I've heard the words, uh, horses, uh, buffalo, pigs, uh, camels, what, what animals, I guess, count as feral? I mean, we've also mentioned cattle as well, and I often hear people refer to feral cattle, but how do you define what a feral animal is? Well, feral animals are uh, a non-native animal that's either been deliberately released into the wild or accidentally released into the wild and established a breeding population. It's become part of the it's become established in the different environments across a country like Australia or other places in the world. So yeah, they have a, they're basically a, an exotic animal that can establish a viable breeding population in its new country. All the large ferals up here came from domestic animals originally. So, well, yeah, well, feral pigs were brought in by the uh, white people and, and, and I think the Chinese also brought in pigs and they, they were allowed to sort of semi-free range uh, around com- uh, settlements and townships and, and from there sort of spread through the bush. In some cases, they, they were deliberately released onto islands as a food source for shipwrecked sailors. Similar with goats. Mm. Goats were also brought in as draft animals and such too in, and, and used for obviously a food resource, but they've adapted to our environment. So just about, well, a feral animal, like I said, is an exotic or an introduced animal. It's not native to the area and it's brought in and allowed to release. It, it becomes complicated with the animals like cattle, which basically they're, they're seen as a resource and a, and a, and a, um, and they're not normally classed as feral because they are an animal of value that can be, even the wild cattle can be utilized. Having said that, all feral animals can, be utilised in one way or another. You know, there was a big uh, game meat market for wild pigs for a long time, and they're a they're a valuable hunting uh, species. So they're a, a resource. There's a big big industry based around hunting wild pigs. So feral has a connotation of being bad, or but re- really feral just means uh, an introduced animal that's gone into the wild and established a breeding population. How in- individual People or communities view feral animals as dependent on what they value. So a lot of people value wild pigs as a resource. And I think that has to be considered in the whole management mm. debate. Every, every, there's, there's room for all of these different viewpoints. It just depends on what individual landowners and, and communities want from an area. If you want to protect 
and keep it pristine. You probably, in, in some areas, people, those people protecting those sort of areas don't want any ferals, but that doesn't mean to say ferals don't have a, uh, place in our, in, in our world today because they are, many of the species are valuable resources for meat or for hunting or for people just enjoy seeing them. Like horses are an example. People enjoy having wild horses around. Which leads us into the question. It's really not about trying to get rid of them or saying they're bad. It's just about management, managing numbers to manage their impacts. And really the impacts are determined by the individual landowners or the communities. As I said, if some people like to see lots and lots of these animals around, then that's how they're going to manage them. I think that was a really important point to make, though, in that it's not necessarily black and white and that our past experiences, our perspective or our outlook and particularly the language we use in relation to these different species will will inform how we see them and how we manage them accordingly. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought, but I'm, I'm, I'm realising now I may have been confused, I thought, you know, feral animals were kind of like, well, feral, uh, and then domestic animals were domestic, but as you've just said, all feral animals came from domestic populations. And now I'm like, maybe I wasn't thinking about the difference between feral and domestic. It's kind of wild and domestic. So the difference is a wolf is obviously wild, whereas a, a cow or a pig or a buffalo is domesticated. Yep. So you can be domesticated and still feral. Yeah. Mm. And and again, you know, do we call it a feral horse or a wild horse? And when you say those two different words, you get very different connotations of you yeah. know, all oh, the wild mustangs or all oh, the feral brumbies, you know, that's, it really does change. And I think obviously when we're managing sentient beings, um, and we're all people, the language we use and how, how we think about things mm-hmm. is obviously as much science as there is in, in any area, particularly this one, you can't, uh, discount the human factor that comes into play with this. No, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it did, there is different, reasons that people want to manage feral animals and 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 that covers that whole spectrum people want to keep them around as a resource people want to keep them around because they they like looking at them like having in the environment well tourism is another thing that people love to see these big feral animals out in areas but again it comes back to the management having too many and destroying the environment doesn't look good but people love to come to see them people want to come and see Buffalo and Kakadu and horses in the Snowy River and all the Snowy Mountains and all that type of thing. I think the bottom line is managing the numbers. Quite often, ferals are feral animals in this country. The species don't have a lot of natural predators. They're, that's one of the advantages they have is that they they have physiology and and behavioural and conformation types that predispose them to being very successful in our environment and as a consequence they can get into very very large numbers like buffalo don't really have any uh, major natural predators crocs take some young ones but buffaloes as a rule are very protective and seem to survive very well in, in crocodile infested areas so you know they've got the behavioral and body size to effectively manage the problem that crocs present as a as a major predator so that they're not it's not a big issue for them pigs Crocs take a lot of pigs, but pigs have other, you know, they, they have the ability to produce a lot of offspring. They're very smart. They do learn pretty quickly. So I, in our experience, the number of pigs that are taken by crocs is not like you've got a lot of pigs in crocodile, high density crocodile areas. So 
the pigs are not their numbers are not being regulated by the crocs. They're just supplying another food source for the crocs. Brett, you, you actually decided to answer my next question for me, which is really handy, and that was how did these animals get to be a problem? And so we've established a lack of predators has obviously really helped them be strong and robust, I guess, as a species. How else did they – is it just through a lack of predators or what else has kind of allowed them to get to at different points in time numbers that are so unsustainable for the landscapes that they're on? I guess the big one is, yeah, there's no predators and no real competition. I mean, we had these big floodplains uh, across the top end here, for example, that didn't weren't, didn't have a, a major grazer like buffalo or cattle or, or even the horses love the floodplains. So there was a big resource there that, that was available for these animals to use. Same in the, in the, in the dry, in the, in the drier parts uh, of inland Australia where you've got lots and lots of goats. You had, um, effective wild dog control in a lot of those areas. So they I mean, goats are very susceptible to, um, predation by dogs, wild dogs. It's one of the reasons why we don't have big populations of wild goats in the, t- in the mainland territory. They occur on some of the islands where there's no dingoes, but where you've got dingoes, it's very hard for goats, for example, to establish. But you take that, Predator away and, and goats will, will, well, as we know from Western New South Wales and Queensland and those areas, goats get into huge numbers. So they're very well adapted to our drier, uh, inland environments. And without a major predator to regulate their numbers, they explode. So it sounds like these animals kind of won the lottery when they were brought to Australia and, and some of them you know, started to wander away from the settlements where they were supposed to be contained. Uh, do you know of any species that you know, didn't thrive. Obviously, the buffalo, camel, horses, goats, donkeys—like they've all been pretty lucky. But was there anything else somebody tried to introduce that tried to go and make it out on their own in the outback, and then just didn't quite hit the mark? Yeah, there's some, but they were introduced for aesthetic reasons or for hunting, like Indian blackbuck and antelope. There was a, they were um, at the time of of um, what. White people coming here. There was, uh, the, uh, as we as we set up um, townships and and uh, established you know, settlements across Australia, they had acclimatisation societies, and they, their role was to look at animals that they could bring from places like England and and uh, some of the uh, antelope and deer and stuff, and release them into the environment here to make it better for hunting and more like home sort of thing. So, yeah, there was a bunch, Indian blackbacks one, there's a bunch of deer species. Most There's a few deer that have established, but, yeah, there, so there was a, there has been a, 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 a range of animals that were other species, but they were sort of wild-type animals that they released to try and establish, like, populations of deer or antelope and stuff, whereas the ones that have done really been really successful tend to be our domesticated animals that are probably less specialist more generalist, specialist to some degree, like goats, like the dry goats are not, you know, like that dry, harsh environment, good in in areas with low moisture. Camels, but I I think compared to a, they're probably more generalist, more more adaptable. Maybe as a consequence of of being a domestic animal, I don't I don't know, but they tend to be thrive better than a lot of the uh, more exotic species that were people did try to release in in Australia a couple of hundred years ago. Bantang's another species in, in the territory that was introduced with early settlers and, and Coburg Peninsula and they haven't moved really from that area over the last 150, 
70 years, whatever it is. And so that, that's another one that um, has been confined and, and didn't move. The buffalo came into the same area and, well, they've gone hell west and crooked. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it's not just a case of any animal, uh, any exotic animal or non-native animal that's introduced poses, they don't all pose the same risk or threat of becoming a widespread feral population and problem. It's, it's, it's not, um, not equal, I guess. No. They, well, they've got to have the right conditions. Well, the ones that have obviously have been adaptable and ability to, you know, evolve, I suppose, over time. And same as that they would have started in, you know, relatively small lo- locations and they've just, spread and spread and spread and then you look at the population distribution of where animals are you know pigs for example you know look at where they are across australia now in down in towards the drier arid areas but they'll be pretty hard environments for them to survive in but they can survive in there in low densities whereas up here on the floodplains you got high densities because there's plenty of food and water well, I guess it's probably about time I actually introduce you guys to our <laughs> listeners. Now that we've established, you know, what we're going to be talking about today and, and what the problem is, why, why do you guys exist and what, what do you guys do? I guess. And we've, so we've kind of just set the scene for that. So I'd like to ask each of you now, I just want to know how you, how do, how do you get into a role like this? Because it seems quite niche. I didn't even realize that there were, was a private industry for it. I, I'd heard of, I think everybody's heard of, you know, government shooters, you know, kind of managing feral animal populations, but I didn't really know that it went beyond that. So let's start with you, Brett. How did you get into this line of work? I did a uh, Bachelor of Science at Armidale University and I was interested in conservation and wildlife management and had the opportunity to go up to Cape York and work up there with Queensland National Parks. And they were doing a lot of feral animal control work up and new, new properties I'd just purchased and it sparked an interest. And at that time I was idealistic and believed that every feral was no good and that you needed to get them out of the, these these environments if we were going to protect them from a conservation viewpoint. But it was a good learning curve about, you know, learning how to manage these animals and some of the challenges involved. And then I was offered a job here in the Territory working with Dr. Graham Webb at Crocodile Research, which was basically a wildlife management company, which is this sort of work is wildlife management. So I learned a, I learned a, a lot there about the principles and, and theory of wildlife management and how to do it properly. And um, it was a very valuable experience. And at the time, we worked closely with the Parks and Wildlife Wildlife Rangers, and um, one of the wildlife rangers had been approached by Defence to do some peril pig control work on Mount Bundy, which Defence had re- just written the property out board in Kakadu that Defence had recently acquired. This is going back in the 90s. And so we um, saw an opportunity to put some of the skills that, and, and, and the interest in feral animal management that, that had taken me up to Cape York into practice out here with, with the project that was happening at Mount Bundy. And that exposed us to management people in Defence who then approached us about Doing more feral animal work for them, so it sort of evolved out of that. We we just did we were dabbling. It was a bit of a hobby, part time, but there was a a need uh, for defence at the time, and that allowed us to establish a small business that looked at not because we bought more than just killing feral animals. We We were talking about management, about assessing population size, developing management programs, looking at 
the levels of control you would need and, and, and how to do it effectively, cost effectively, and from a, a viewpoint of reducing densities down to management levels that were acceptable. So we brought that sort of skill set to the, the issue, which, which allowed us to establish a reputation with some of these organizations and opened a few doors for us in terms of the opportunity to do, do more and more of this sort of work. It's very interesting that you, when people tell me that they're interested in conservation, I suppose I always look at it in the other, I suppose the, through the other lens of saving animals and saving the environment, yep. which is effectively what you're doing, but it's through the management of feral animals. Um, <clears throat> so I think you think about it from the, the saving, not the part that involves perhaps some killing or culling and, well, yeah. But so, it really is conservation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, conserv, yeah. I mean, saving animals is, not really conservation. Conservation is about manage. Like animals are going to die, uh, live and die in, in 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 the bush and environments, and it's about understanding population quality and dynamics and, and what you need to do if, if if a species being is if its numbers are declining. It's about it's a numbers game really. If if a species is declining, you try and figure out why it's declining and what you need to do to stop that decline and allow that that population to recover to a a healthy level again. So the crocs were a good example up here, you know. The the uh, harvesting for skins drove the numbers down to very low levels and then people became concerned about them and so they put in a management uh, across the top end, Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia all developed state uh, management plans to recover crocodile numbers and obviously they've been very effective to, to the point today where we have good healthy populations of crocs around. That's... That's what conservation's all about, in, 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 in my, from my, my viewpoint. It's not necessarily about saving individual animals or saving animals. It's about managing populations for, for, a, for, like I said, a, a species may need to be brought, recovered because its numbers have crashed or in the, in the case of, of kangaroos, for example, you, you need to manage them because their numbers often go through explosions that, um, are probably generated by excess good food and water that they didn't have before we established an agricultural industry here. So you're managing a native species there, but you 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 need to manage to reduce numbers. Otherwise, you have problems of starvation, big die-offs, uh, too, too many animals uh, in, a, in an environment in hard times, flogging all the uh, pastures, all the grasses, causing other management and environmental problems. So conservation's, yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a, a really good point to make because similar to how we said with feral, that word has the, a negative connotation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Again, that just shows the importance of our understanding of the language we're using and what connotations we have with it. Because in my mind, I hear the word conservation. I think Ranger Tracy with a wombat on her lap. Yeah, you know, save, yeah. save them. You know, whatever, or maybe Australia Zoo, Steve Owen. But what you've just said is also is is bang on as well. But and even though I'm somehow involved in this industry, I hadn't really. So again, it's really important to, and I'm, I'm thank you for clarifying that. What about you, Stu? How did you come into the <laughs> land of conservation and feral animals? Well, I grew up in WA, so and I was my family. My father was pretty heavily involved in the pig industry. He was involved with all the national agro politic level, as well as running what that stage was one of the biggest intensive piggeries in the southern hemisphere. And then I went to ag college. Then about the same time Brett came up here, I came up here and um, ended up working with Graham as well 
in the same wildlife management company and so we became pretty good mates over the time back then and yeah the wildlife management interest was really sparked there I suppose what I really saw when I first came up here with the croc stuff was it coming from a farming background and the croc farms were pretty much in their early days of operating at that stage there wasn't a lot of production orientated type management within it. It was just a bit of a survival of the fittest type scenario. <laughs> so just looking at it from that point of view, so I got involved with it there for three or four years, whatever it was. And then from that, I went on to manage a big commercial crop farm out at Fog Dam for 12 years or so. But during that time, we were doing this out of interest on the side and because it did intrigue us and that type of thing. And yeah, so... I was there till about 2004 at the croc farm and that's when we pretty much, it was at a stage at the, for the business point of view too where we couldn't keep doing it on the side on weekends in spare time and that sort of thing and it was building with the amount of work so we took a punt and said we'll try and give it a go full time and here we still are. So it sounds like for you two that there is a wealth of on-the-ground experience which, again, I suppose I was expecting but – I kind of also imagine that in this role, you know, might you, you kind of imagine people in offices with PhDs and like, you know, and I know you guys have the technical background as well, but a lot of on the ground actually being there with animals, watching them, living with them as well, which must be really handy. And so the business is called Wild Science. You mentioned just before, Brett, that it's not just animal control in terms of culling. And I guess maybe I'm just wondering if that's where in the name you've got the word science. So it's not it's not just, you know, some people going around shooting animals or trapping animals or whatnot. You've got a whole range of skills and tools in your toolbox that you can use from ones that, you know, like you've got all the scientific backing, but you've also got all that on-ground experience to, to kind of match up with it, which is really unique and really cool actually. You can, you know, that you guys can go out and load the gun and use the gun, but you also understand, like you said, the population ecology and numbers, like there's also got to be a fair bit of math in there, science. You don't just have to understand the species you're working with, but their environments. So tell me about what exactly wild science does and offers people. You've pretty summed it up really well, I think, (laughs) there in regards to that. that. That's where we probably differ from a lot of people is that, we do have a very practical-based background, but we also understand the science and are able to implement that, linking them together. And I think that's what makes a lot of difference because you can sit there with all the qualifications under the sun and model things in a in an office, but trying to then apply that if it's on the ground doesn't always work. And having that understanding makes a big difference when you're trying to apply this on large-scale management type situations so we do a array of things from like the surveying working out population estimates management programs for three and four five-year plans that type of thing and what's needed and how much effort's required and all the planning that goes into that type of thing to help clients planning and budgeting and, and managing going forward with those sorts of programs so it, it's we're just problem solvers, really, I suppose, at the end of the day. If they've got a problem with an animal on larger scale type situations, there's stuff that we haven't always had a lot of experience in, 
but we've gone back, we've researched, you look at what's been done, how people have done things, and then we've been involved and then we adapt it. And being able to adapt that science, and I think that's where the practical side comes in really importantly because we can get the science side of it, but then understanding animal behaviour and working out that quite quickly, you can adapt things to make it fit so you can achieve you know, a potential outcome that someone's chasing. All right, so don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, head on over to the Our Territory, Our Future podcast. We've got a lot of other episodes, including some from cattle stations, and they're all from the Territory, so there's bound to be things in there that you will enjoy listening to. All right, we'll catch you next time.